You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, so that we might be equipped for every good work. This book, the Bible, is God-breathed in some mysterious way I'm not sure I ever fully understand so that I and you can be equipped for every good work. It's for this reason that we're trying to understand this book this summer. We're going through the whole grand narrative in 14 weeks, the story of the Bible, to understand what's in there and how does God use it exactly to equip us and to shape our lives. Last week we looked at Exodus, the Exodus uh, segment or story arc, uh, and we learned that no matter where we are, uh, God always has a way out. This week we come to the story arc of the promised land. Because there are times where we do know where we are, but what if there we are exhausted? What if we're here today, but we're tired? What if for life we're showing up, but we're really, if we were honest, just spent? The promised land. God promised Israel a land, and if you ask the question, why did he do that? In a word, it's rest. Rest for his people. We can see that in Joshua, which is where we'll find our text this morning. In verse 13, let me just read it to you. He says, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. That was God's promise to them back then. And this is, I believe, God's promise to you and to me this morning. I am providing for you a place of rest. And that's what I want to invite you into in Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, would you open up your Bible to Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9? Uh, you'll find this on page 168 of the Pew Bible, if that's what you're looking at. And uh, it'll be a little bit of a surprise as we read this text, because three times, as God calls Israel to rest, he also calls them to be strong and courageous. Would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. After we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Be strong and courageous, for you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. How is it that Joshua could be strong and courageous at this point in his life, you might ask? Remember Joshua? Joshua is supremely competent. If uh, Moses were the president, Joshua's really been Israel's CEO, his right-hand man, we read. If 
Moses were the commander-in-chief, then Joshua would really be the five-star general in the theater of battle. He's the guy that you would go to to get something done. He is strong and courageous by constitution. He's a warrior, and yet, by this point, he must be running on empty. He's an old man. He's been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. He's battle-weary. He's now the right-hand man to a man who has died. And he's just got to feel like a right hand. Moses is dead, God tells him at the beginning of the book of Joshua. It's just you, Joshua. So I ask ourselves, how can he be strong and courageous at this point in his life? I mean, Joshua knows what he faces. He knows the problems. He knows the challenges. He knows the crisis ahead. Remember, he was one of the 12 spies who 40 years ago had a front row seat. The strength of the Canaanites, the numbers, the superior technology, he was there. So he knows that if they cross this Jordan River, it's not going to be easy. His knees will shake as much as or more than anybody else's. And yet here God calls him to rest. Now, it's not rest without struggle, but it is rest in the midst of struggle. I want to suggest it's the very same kind of rest that you and I need this morning. Why is it such a battle to find rest in our lives? I told some of you a story about a group of, of uh, family, friends of mine, who were going on a vacation. They just needed to step out and refresh themselves. A uh, family of five, not so easy to get that family out of the door on an early morning when the flight is leaving, as you know. So uh, they had everything planned out and uh, very tactically uh, prescribed. The, the car pulled up on the tarmac outside of the, air, the terminal. All five doors popped open, and they had it all planned out. You know, Dad was going to unload the luggage, and Mom was going to go right ahead with the tickets and be in the line and the eldest son was going to shuttle the bags back and forth until dad brought the big one and the middle daughter was going to uh, hold the hand of the youngest and bring the carry-on. It was all mapped out and they went through the airport like a SWAT team, you know, hut, 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 hut. They finally got on the plane and they just kind of all exhaled. Rest. Until mom looked at dad and said, you did park the car, didn't you? No, as it turned out, all five doors still open, motor running. The car was sitting outside of the terminal. <laughs> it was not a very restful four-hour flight. Why is it so hard? Why is it such a struggle? Why is it such a battle just to find rest? Let me ask you, how was your week last week? How did it go? How many of you were involved with day camp last week? I mean, I was like, oh, these, look at this. These guys made it to church. Unbelievable. I saw you out there. I can't believe you can even make a noise. There was so much enthusiasm. It was a wonderful time. Woodland Park and here in our building. Kids were everywhere. You've got to be exhausted. I know I'm exhausted. I had one of those weeks last week. Actually, my wife was out of town, so I had to do everything. Can you believe it? Now I have great appreciation for Ann. Uh, and I, it was one of those weeks where I, I, because of an old running injury that I've sort of flared up, I've been on a training table in physical therapy. And you know it's bad when the physical therapy, therapist is putting ice on your heel and electrocuting you, and they still have to wake you up. Uh, Mr. Hinman, it's time to go to the next station. Just tired. And then with that physical fatigue comes this emotional fatigue. Do I have reserves for my colleagues at work? Am I available to my wife emotionally? Am I patient with my children? Such a battle to find rest. The velocity of life these days just seems to be accelerating. 
If you, if you remember Juliet Shore's book, The Overworked American, she says over a 20-year period recently, we have been gaining one month per year of work time. Wouldn't think that's possible. A couple of cardiologists a little while ago coined this phrase called hurry sickness. This is this idea that I have to talk fast. Some of you say I do that. I have to walk fast. I have to drive fast. Uh, Just hurrying all the time. Preoccupation with to-do lists and tasks and calendars and schedule. Hurry sickness. And these physicians said if it goes too far, it can become serious. It can become chronic. And they mentioned three symptoms of this. And the first one is personality deterioration. And they say that because when you have hurry sickness in the extreme, you're focused so much on goals and achievement that you are, you're letting all the other interests that make life so rich fall to the side. The personality deterioration. The second thing they mention is racing mind syndrome. You can't even get a full, fully developed thought in your head before another one comes and interrupts. So it's that next one, just in such a hurry, you have a whole queue of, of, of thoughts in your brain. They're trying to get your attention, racing mind syndrome. And the third thing they say is inability to acquire pleasant memories. Why is that? Because you're so focused on the past or on the future, you just can't be in the present. You're really not acquiring these pleasant memories. You begin to feel hollow on the inside. It's a battle to find rest for us these days. We're just exhausted by day. And we're so busy we can't even sleep at night. For our elderly, sometimes just the simplest of tasks are exhausting, are they not? Getting dressed in the morning or or getting to that doctor's appointment. For those of us who are working, there are two careers and we're expected to be virtually every place all at once. And we're multitasking. Even our, our, our children are maxed out. Their schedule, the kids, man, they're down to 15-minute intervals. You know, they've got piano and select soccer and schoolwork. And now it's not just about learning math. It's about competing in math with those who are in Singapore or Norway. Uh, it's a crazy world. Joshua will find his strength, not because he fights for it, Maybe we're so exhausted because we're fighting for our rest. Joshua will find his strength and courage in rest. And he'll find his rest in God's word. Let me say that again. We will find real rest by meditating in God's word. That's the invitation God gives him. Did you see that in verse 8? Let's look at it again. This book of the law... Uh, By the way, at this point, you might wonder what book. It's probably a book that Moses had written. It's at the core of the book of Deuteronomy. And there's several references in Deuteronomy to Moses' book of the law. This book of the law, so he's got a scroll, shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, always, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous. You shall meditate on God's word. Now, is that surprising? We're talking about a military strategist. We're talking about a soldier. And God's saying, your success will not come from your training, your experience, your weaponry, your field intelligence, your strategy. Your success will come from the state of your soul. I want to repeat that. Your success will come from the state of your soul. I hope this worship service today for you is kind of a speed bump for a busy life. 
What would it take for you to slow down and pay attention to the state of your soul? Well, meditation is what God says. If you're too busy to meditate, if you're too busy for God, or you don't want to wrestle with sometimes the uncomfortable implications of following Jesus in your life, or you'd rather find your own rest and refreshment by working harder and harder and harder, not by relaxing into the promises of Jesus Christ, then C.S. Lewis has some advice for you. C.S. Lewis says, avoid silence. Avoid solitude. Avoid any train of thought that leads off the beaten track. Concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, on your own grievances. Keep the radio on. Live in a crowd. Use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them very carefully. But you'd better stick to the papers. You'll find the advertisements helpful, especially those with a sexy or snobbish appeal. No, meditation. And here's my definition this morning of meditation. Simply sit down. Two words. Sit down. You got the whole sermon right there. Sit down. I remember working at Mass General Hospital for a while as a chaplain in the cardiac access unit, and I was always amazed at how surprised most of these men in their 50s coming in, and they were high-achieving, overachieving, and all of a sudden, boom, they found themselves in a hospital room. People in white coats explaining things to them. And they finally were sitting down, not in the way that I'm suggesting. But I want to ask, uh, what does it mean to meditate on God's word? My suggestion, it's to sit in the story. This word, meditate, in verse 8, in the, in the Hebrew, it's an interesting word that's oftentimes used of animals, where it would be translated to growl. Uh, for humans, it means to mutter. That's why you notice the mouth is involved. It's to read, but not to read with a lot of articulation. That's the meditate. But in the ancient world, they may not have actually read silently as we do. They may have always used their mouth to read. And so uh, to, to mutter your way through God's word, to read it slowly, to read it for nobody else, with, with no distinction, just for yourself. Uh, to sit in the story for yourself. The, the Greek translation in the ancient, the Septuagint, as the Greek scholars translated in, in uh, the day of, of um, uh, Alexander the Great, they used the word that meant to sit, to study, and to think about. So here's a little bit more active uh, form of reflection to really investigate, to study God's word. So we have both what, what you sometimes call Lectio Divina, spiritual reading, uh, re just reading in the presence of God and re repeating phrase upon phrase the richness of God's word very slowly. We also have this uh, academic study of the scripture using the books and the resources and the tools to really mine the truth of this story. Meditate. It's not an emptying of the mind, and under the influence, I think, of Greek thought, I mean, Eastern thought, we sometimes think of a meditation as, as, as creating a void in our mind, but this is just the opposite. This is filling the mind, filling the mind, being saturated in the, in the mind with the, the story of God. Richard Baxter, the uh, 17th century writer, pastor, wrote a book called The Saints Everlasting Rest, and he spoke about all the powers of the soul. Because for him, meditation was not just intellectual. It's about all the powers of the soul, the emotion, everything. And he writes, when, when truth is apprehended only as truth, this is but a savorless and loose apprehension. But when it is apprehended as good as well as true, this is a firm and delightful apprehension. This is that that has deceived Christians in this business. They've thought that meditation is nothing but the bare thinking on truths and the rolling of them in, in the understanding and memory. 
But if your meditation tends to fill your notebook with notions and good sayings concerning God and not your heart with longings after him and delight in him, for all I know, your notebook is, much, is as much a Christian as you are. Wow, that's fighting words. What are you saying? You've got to bring your whole self, your soul, and you've got to sit in the text long enough to really see who God is and be drawn in with affection and delight and eagerness and aspiration and love to know him, and to be known by him. I had some friends in Los Angeles, great people, uh, and, they, and they resigned the rat race one day. I've never seen people do this quite so extremely. Um, and L.A. is crazy. You know, the long freeways, the commute times, the work stress, the isolation, all of that. This guy had a real high-powered job at, at Walt Disney, and he resigned it. Even the happiest people on the earth couldn't sustain him through a miserable experience as a job. He's just working two, two, two incomes, two kids, and they finally said, you know what, this is just crazy. This is not what I would call living. And they quit the job, sold the house, huge mortgage, and they said, we're leaving. And they went to a little village in Wales. We all went to our encyclopedias and found, where's Wales? And, you know, it's, it's everywhere that L.A. is not. And... Um, and I thought, I was so impressed by that. I thought, that takes so much courage and real commitment to a simpler life. And they did it. But I was even more surprised when just three years later, they moved back to L.A. and took the job again. <laughs> and, there, and, and, what they, and what you discover there is that rest is not about where you are. It's about who you are. It's not about the external landscape. It's about the interior landscape of your soul. See, it's not about your challenges it's about your relationship with God. So how? How does meditating on God's word give us rest? Well, you've got to sit long enough so that we can see that God is in our story. He's in your story. You see that in verse 5. I mean, that's what God has said. We didn't read this part, but if you just look up. Uh, the Lord says to Joshua, no one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Why? As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will be with you. I will not fail you. I'm not going to drop you in the Hebrew. And I'm not going to forsake you. See, when you meditate on my word, Joshua, you're going to see that I'm not just in Moses' story, that those Bible stories of old. I am in your story as well. Sit in my word and see that I'm here sitting with you. And then you have to sit long enough to see that we ourselves are in God's story. Not just that he's in ours, but that we're in his, which is even more important. The Bible is a book, not just that we read, but that reads us. The Bible will read us and will challenge us and it will question us and it will redirect us. And this is what we see, really, in the story arc of the promised land. It encompasses three physical books in the Bible, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And each one has a slightly different message. Maybe we're exhausted, for example, as we read these books, because we're going at life with the wrong way, in the wrong way. And one of the things I love about the book of Joshua is, yes, they're going to be fighting. It's a kind of a military account, but with all the wrong weapons. Not with swords, because God wants peace. With trumpets, because God loves music. And, and, and loud shouts and things like this. It's all non-conventional. There's this critique of military violence built into that book. We're to do things God's way. And maybe we're exhausted because we're going out of the wrong way. It's the book of Joshua. The book of Judges questions the goals. The refrain in the book of Judges is they sought to do everything. They, they did what was right in their own eyes. Boy, that, that's a good description of the world today. They did what was right in their own eyes. We are our own authority. And we pick goals. And sometimes God says, maybe you're exhausted because you're picking a goal that the world has defined, but it's not my goal for you. 
I've got something better. And then the book of Ruth, wrong attitudes. Maybe I'm just worn out because I'm just bringing the wrong thinking to this. And Ruth is this beautiful picture in the time of, of, of the promised land, the settlement of people who bring these attitudes of compassion and mercy and faith and loyalty and justice. Very countercultural. And you go, wow, what a beautiful picture of, of, of rest we have in the book of Ruth. What causes burnout? There's a couple that I know in California that are experts, Fran and Walt Becker, in uh, leadership burnout. And I've asked them this question, you know, are there any themes over the years as you've worked with hundreds of leaders in different fields, uh, what burnout has been all about? And they're Christians, and they said, yeah, we can show it to you in a verse. I want to read this passage to you. It's a few verses, but I want to, this passage has reoriented me. It's Isaiah chapter 30. Please write this down and go and reflect on it later on uh, this week. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 through 18a. Listen to this. This is the NIV, which is a really nice translation. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then catch this. He says, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore you will flee, says God. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, says God, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. A thousand of you Israelites will, will flee at the threat of one. This is just the opposite of Samson, who had fought off a thousand Philistines with one jawbone. That's what it's like to rely on rest and repentance, quietness and trust. But when you don't, a thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee, the whole nation, till, all, till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Single, solitary person just waving in the wind. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. See what he's saying there? In repentance and rest is your salvation. Not in hurried, harried busyness. Not in white-knuckling your way through the day. Repentance and rest. Let me ask you to ask yourself this morning, how tired am I? Is the treadmill working for me? How am I letting the story of God's word shape my life? Or how am I letting the story of the world shape my soul? How do I interact with God's word? Are Jesus and I in the same story? Did you know that Jesus was named for Joshua? Jesus is just the Greek form of Joshua. And the name, as we already saw in Ray's story, it means the Lord saves. Jesus has fought your battles and won your rest already. He's, uh, he, he is the victory in himself over sin and death. He is the victory over guilt and shame. He is the victory over the powers and principalities of this age. And when we take time to sit with Jesus, we will always rise with great strength and courage. A friend of mine lost his father when he was 12 years old, drunk driving incident. Woke up in the hospital. His mom was standing over him. She explained that his father was dead and had been a drunk driver. When my friend asked what happened to the driver, she said, he's okay. Got a bloody nose. And I don't know why it always seems to happen that way. But he was enraged. She caught that spirit in him and immediately she said, do not be bitter. 
If you, if you want to know how that's possible, how a woman who's instantly been widowed and her whole world has changed could say reflexively, do not be bitter. My friend said it only comes through a lifetime, years of meditation on God's word. Jesus is in her story, and she is in the story with Jesus, and she has sat with him day after day. So, friends, every morning you and I have a choice. We can begin with the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and our inbox. We can do what the world does and work harder until we find ourselves in fatigue and ultimately realize this whole deal is bigger than I am and we find ourselves melting into fear. Or we can begin with God's word. We can read. We can pray through it. We can translate it into our own words. We can sing it. We can memorize it. We can hear God saying, don't depend on yourself. I can solve problems in your life that you can't solve. You can cast your cares on me because I care for you. And he does. And we can. We find he's always faithful to do that. The promised land is for tomorrow, but we can find God's rest today. Sit in God's word and then get up and say with Martin Luther, I know not the way he leads me, but well do I know my guide. Let's pray. God, thank you for slowing us down and being the one voice in all of the world that says, I just love you. And I don't love you because you're busy. In fact, I just love it when you're resting. So help us to meet you each day and then to be able to live the day with you because you will never leave us you will not drop us you'll never forsake us thank you jesus amen for more upc audio or to find out about service times visit us at upc.org all online audio is available on cd and cassette to order copies of sermons and classes please visit upc.org audio email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.